Okay, so how does a stand-up comic, Dan Tomasulo, hailed by the legendary improv as one of the four top comics, alongside people like Robin Williams and Andy Kaufman, end up leaving it all behind to pursue a PhD in psychology and MFA in writing, a Master of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, then build a decades-long career in clinical practice, land a gig as the incoming academic director and core faculty member at the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute at Columbia University, and become a leading voice in the world of positive psychology, positive education, psychodrama, and positive psychotherapy. And how exactly along the way does that same person build a career as a writer, penning an award-winning memoir, American Snake Pit, along with a companion screenplay that has since racked up awards at more than 30 film festivals, all while deepening into teaching, researching, helping thousands, and now bringing to the world a new book, Learned Hopefulness, The Power of Positivity to Overcome Depression, at a time that we need these ideas more than ever. How does one person do all of this? And what is this thing he calls learned hopefulness? This is where we go in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. 
So I was a comic. I was a stand-up comic uh, for years. And um, if you go back and look on the 20th anniversary of the improv, uh, they picked uh, four uh, top comics at the time. You know, it was Robin Williams. Uh, we had Andy Kaufman. We had, uh, you know, it was all like that. And then four of us who were up-and-comers. And I was one of those guys. Uh, the other three have gone on to marvelous careers. And I uh, have uh, decided to blend a little bit of comedy with uh, the real world. And um, during that time, I was writing, uh, but I was also finishing my PhD in uh, psychology. So I was writing comedy. You know, it takes about an hour to write a minute of comedy. <laughs> you have lots of bad jokes uh, that don't seem to make it. And then performing, you know, uh, pretty much every night and then uh, on the circuit a bit. And so what, what happened was this tear came. And the tear was sort of like, geez, you know, to finish a PhD and then to be four in the morning in Hell's Kitchen uh, doing comedy to uh, a bunch of other comics, uh, something had to give. And uh, the, the, what, what gave was I got introduced to uh, psychodrama, uh, and that was back in uh, uh, 1980. And that just blew me away. It was like, oh, wait, I don't have to sacrifice, uh, you know, what I love about performance and comedy and writing uh, for psychology and vice versa. And so um, I was probably a little, you know, I, I thought I would learn everything there is to know about psychodrama in about a year, but uh, it took me 13 years postdoc uh, to learn all that. And then that was very powerful. That that opened me up to like the possibility of deeply exploring healing, uh, the use of humor during uh, therapeutic encounters. Um, I ended up becoming a trauma expert and then a positive psychology. And I think the the humor has informed it. And uh, then somewhere along the line, I, I became more serious about writing because writing jokes takes, you know, a certain skill, but writing uh, a 1500 word <laughs> essay is something a little more. And then, then I went back to the new school to get uh, an MFA in writing because uh, academic writing will destroy your brain. So I had to go back and get a little creative. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I have um, writing to me is still my first expressive medium. Um, I went to law school and did a stint as a lawyer and huh? and was taught this very rigid formulaic way of writing. And when I finally transitioned out of that, and yeah. I, I was, I felt well-informed and I really appreciated the structure and the, the thought process, but I was so excited to actually be able to step into a different way to, uh, to write and freestyle and, and storytell. I'm curious about psychodrama because I don't entirely understand what it is. Can you share a bit more about that? Sure. Well, just a, a little historical perspective. So uh, back in uh, Vienna at the time of Freud, there was Jacob Levy Moreno. And uh, there's, uh, you know, Freud was trying to recruit people into his new movement on psychoanalysis. So Jung was part of that from Zurich, you know, and um, they tried to uh, enlist Moreno as Moreno was developing this, you know, really theater-based approach to healing. And there's a famous encounter between Freud and Moreno where Freud uh, uh, tries to get him over, you know, to the psychoanalytic side. And what Moreno says, you put people on a couch and analyze their dreams. I put them on a stage and teach them to dream again. 
I think that was the last time they talked, you know. <laughs> so, but just, you know, importantly, Morena went on to be called the um, uh, psychiatrist of the century uh, in the same century as Freud, just to let you know his impact. He developed social network theory, which is what Facebook is based on. And uh, really all forms of group therapy emanated from psychodrama. And it's an action-oriented form of therapy. So if you say you're upset with your mother in regular therapy, then we talk about it for an hour. But in psychodrama, we'd put an empty chair and invite your mother into the room. And uh, what happens during that kind of an encounter is that you're you're activating memory in a different way and you're activating the possibility for transformation in a different way because uh, it's what's called embodied cognition. It basically means when I play a role and I play that role as deeply as possible, my brain changes. So what I became fascinated with is the idea that psychodrama can move very quickly and we can see uh, healing things if it's done right in, uh, in, in the same speed of time that you can see trauma happen. And so I applied it to people who've been traumatized, who had great, great difficulty to get some relief uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I know um, I'm, I'm familiar with like one of the modalities that, that's been talked about um, a number of times over the years in adipositive psychology, the gratitude visit. Yeah. But I know you have an interesting variation, which until now I didn't realize, I guess, is steeped in sort of like uh, the overlay between positive psychology then and psychodrama, which sort of like takes that same empty chair approach. Yeah. Oh, man, you've done your homework. I'm impressed. Uh, uh, yeah, when I uh, I went through a really rough time uh, about 10 years ago and uh, nothing really worse than a depressed psychologist. You know, <laughs> People would talk to me about their depression and I'd be like, huh, you think you got it bad? You know, I didn't actually say that. But, you know, I was in therapy and supervision. And then uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you go see what Marty Seligman is doing over at UPenn? And uh, I went and when I got there, uh, it was like, oh my goodness, uh, they, I was originally trained as a researcher and I was like, man, if even a half of what they're doing is true, we've really got something. And uh, I signed up for, um, you know, the master's program. I didn't, I didn't really need any of the academic degrees, but I figured I know me, if I'm not committed to something, it, uh, I, I just won't get it, you know? And I went and, um, you, you know, uh, saw uh, Marty's work. And, you know, that was a big thing to study this gratitude visit where uh, people, students, his students would write a letter of gratitude and then actually deliver them. And I remember like literally the first day saying to Marty, that's a great start, but what if the people you have gratitude for aren't available anymore. They've passed on. You've lost track of them. Uh, we have this rich resource of gratitude that uh, could be harvested if we did it in a psychodramatic way. So I started to experiment with that. Most of psychodrama was about unveiling and releasing negative emotions. And so most people have heard of that as a catharsis. But when you go back and look at what Aristotle said, there was two kinds of catharsis. We never talk about the other one. There was a catharsis of abreaction, which is basically a purging of negative emotions. But then there was this catharsis of integration. 
And integration basically is what happens when we have a positive emotion. When there's something really good that's going on, we want to find ways to bring it in and hang on to it. We don't want to purge that. So uh, I developed this technique called the uh, virtual gratitude visit. And uh, basically what happens is that people will put an empty chair across from themselves and they'll identify who it is that they want to express gratitude toward. And then they find the, the words that, uh, that go with that. And it's extraordinary to watch. I've probably done 500 of these now. We do research on this sort of stuff. It's very powerful. And then what happens is they reverse roles and become the other person. See, that's the part in positive psychology that um, hasn't really been fully embraced. And I, that's where I do a lot of my work. When you reverse roles, this embodied cognition allows you to receive the gratitude that you were sending. That is where the catharsis of integration happens. And then they come back to their own role and, and, and close it out. Can I just tell a quick story on this? Yeah, so, please. Yeah, yeah. There's, so there's a, the, so Dan Lerner and uh, Alan Schluchter have this uh, great course uh, at uh, NYU. And every semester I'm invited to do a uh, virtual gratitude visit. It's usually around Thanksgiving in the fall and right after uh, spring break in the spring. And, um, Every year, it's 500 students, so it's an amphitheater. And I've had a lot of training in psychodrama, so I know how to set it up, get them ready, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then we pick a, uh, a volunteer, a volunteer comes up, and inevitably, every semester for the last, I don't know, 10 years or how long the course is running, all the students and the people on stage, they're crying once they do this thing. And uh, I guess it was the last time I was there, someone had gotten special permission to come into the class and they wanted to see me do this thing. So the guy came in a little bit late and I was already right in the middle of this drama and he opened the door and every single person is crying. And I could hear him because you could you know, hear a pin drop. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I thought this was positive psychology. And they're going, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, so that's a catharsis of integration. That's the way that stuff works. Yeah, I mean, so so powerful. Um, I haven't done this yet, but I I, I actually want to do it. I'm going to spend some time trying to think about it. And also, it's a I I love that what you, you've taken a tool that was sort of like out there and explored, and um, but there was this really one substantial blind spot, which is what if this person, either through passing on or through geography or through just you know the complication of communication, is not available to you to actually you know, like be with, you know, you're the traditional approach to the gratitude visit where, you, you know, you, you actually have them and you're, you're like sharing your gratitude. You lose the, all of that potential to gain that same experience. But, and then the addition of being able to feel the integration side by switching roles. Mm. So powerful. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. Um, but I, I think that's what, what sometimes happens, right? With different modalities when you're sort of, you know, we, we tend to, to, exist in silos to a certain extent and we go narrow and deep into our field of expertise right. and then when we have somebody who can sort of come into our orbit and say well this is fascinating and and i have expertise in this different but complementary thing of what happens yeah. if you couple the two together yeah i think that's partly what has happened in the fusion of my my different uh, backgrounds and and skills is like okay so uh, can we do this with writing can we do this with psychodrama can we take the best of what we know 
uh, can happen with people and use it as an exemplar or create an experience where people aren't just learning about gratitude, like, uh, you know, the charts and diagrams, but can they feel the transformation? You know, the, the clinical division of the International Positive Psychology Association has been very supportive and very kind when they've seen this work. And that's been very helpful as well, because uh, along the way, I had won a couple of awards for, for doing something new and innovators award and that kind of thing. And uh, what I like about it is that, you know, a lot of people who are doing the research are giving us some incredible data. And I, I sort of see my role now is how can I make this come alive? Um, how, how can we take this and make it simple, accessible, powerful, uh, so that people have that capacity? Last year, by the way, in Australia, uh, I did the flip side of the uh, uh, virtual gratitude visit. I don't, I don't know if it's quite the flip, but it was the um, uh, embodied cognition version of um, self-compassion uh, because this is with another person, the virtual gratitude visit. But with self-compassion, you actually have an encounter with your benevolent self, uh, that aspect of you, that part of you that would treat you like a good friend. Uh, and again, I just took the work that was there, Christine Neff's work on compassion, just beautiful work, uh, but it really didn't include the use of a role reversal. Even some of her work had an empty chair kind of tucked in there, but uh, uh, it's, it's the role reversal where you play both sides. And then what happens is you come back to your space more whole. And that that's really something to watch too. You see people kind of do a three to five minute role play. And when they're done, they're, they're whole. And that's cool to watch. Yeah. And don't we need more of that these days? <laughs> True enough. True enough. Um, you, I'm curious about the, um, the writing also. You mentioned you eventually went back and you got your MFA. That was at the new school. And I believe you also either were taught by or mentored by somebody who's an old friend of mine and, um, and a friend of the show, Danny Shapiro. Oh yeah, sure. Danny, she was my, uh, oh. uh, I, uh, she, she was extraordinary and my mentor at the, at the new school. Very, very wonderful woman. Yeah. So part of my fascination is that the choice to go back and get an MFA in writing, I mean, granted you have a lot of degrees now, but, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but um, you know, that's not, I, I understand the desire to un learn how to work um, with words to help out with sort of, you know, like the therapeutic outcomes and, and develop better protocols and modalities. But this to me also, it sounds like there is also this standalone thing with you, which is just a, a, a joy, a love of writing, a love of creative expression, a love of storytelling, because, you know, it shows up not just you know, the fact that you've, you know, penned memoirs, but also books and playwriting and screenwriting. And so this is independent of its sort of utility in, you know, helping figure out how to, how to get people better outcomes. It sounds like it is, is a true creative channel for you as well. Yeah. My, uh, my father wanted me to go into the uh, electrical union when I was a, a teenager because I really wasn't college material, you know, and uh, uh, so I failed the uh, 
uh, test to go into the electrician's union. So we had friends and uh, they tried to get me into the carpenter's union, the tin knockers union. And I, I remember taking the test for the plumber's union where they escorted me out of the building. They they said, uh, you know, this, this young man should be allowed to flush a toilet by himself, but if he has to fill a tub, there should be assistance, you know? So I didn't, I didn't really have any other skills and i uh, somehow i went to college on a on a, a little wrestling uh, thing which didn't last very long but i remember taking the creative writing course and i was like they teach courses in this telling stories this is awesome you know and i i didn't realize the power of it i i knew that writing was something that was inside of me and uh, you know wanting to communicate stories but there's a big difference between telling a story verbally and writing a story and then communicating a tale uh, these are just different skill sets and i i knew i had uh, some ability with that but i was also very much aware of some of my favorite uh, writers you know you look at david sedaris and it's like oh my goodness you know and even people crossover folks like uh, oliver sacks or or irvin yalom when you see that uh, you can have people who are deeply informed at one level who can tell stories for transformation that just ignited me and i so i went to a new school i'm i'm glad i went when i did i think i went in the first year they had opened i don't think i could get in now I'll tell you the truth it's it's uh it's so evolved but i went in and i'll 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 tell you the training there was extraordinary and um after the first year i was kind of like known as oh it's the psychologist guy who tells jokes and so it was you know um and then i got to lucy greeley's class uh anatomy of a face uh, you know we had to take memoir classes and danny's class and um and, and memoir and lucy said uh you you're not going to pass my course unless you write the darkest thing you've ever written and i said then i'm not going to pass your course i don't really need the degree i don't care about the course we had a little back and forth and uh she was like well it's okay with me. It's just like you already know how to write something funny. But I don't think you've had enough experience writing about something dark. So she challenged me and uh, I, I told her, uh, okay, you want dark? I live all day in dark. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll do that. So for this whole semester, I wrote one story. And uh, this story was about the night my cousin, uh, died of an overdose of heroin. And this story had no landing gear. It goes from that moment where uh, we're having about as much fun as you can have, having dinner, and then he goes home, uh, shoots up, dies, and the next morning I'm at his, uh, his wake. And my life, I was in that PhD program, I was doing comedy, I was doing all that. And uh, so I wrote that story and uh, I said, there you go, Lucy, you want dark? <laughs> you got dark. And she submitted that for the university prize and it won. Uh, he worked at a bar called Kettle of Fish, the famous uh, dive bar in New York City. 
and uh, that was the title of the story. And that's what got me an agent and got me this and that. And, uh, you know, and so Danny, Danny Shapiro was just an extraordinary person because she was on the other side of that. Uh, you know, she was helping me like think things through more thoroughly, more deeply using uh, different elements of story to make a point. And so, yeah, it could be funny, but it doesn't matter after a while unless you have a punctuation point. And so my first memoir, uh, Confessions of a Former Child, included that story about my cousin. And everybody, uh, when they read that book, appreciated the comedy, but it was the balance of the pathos that uh, that gave it the richness. So I, I can't say enough good things about uh, the New School or Danny Shapiro. Yeah, and, and what I mean, to be able to work with both Lucy and Danny, sort of like at the same time, I mean, two legends in this space with just so such deep wisdom so much to share it must have been so impactful yeah life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to 
its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It's so interesting also that the idea of you being able to tell, you know, like that particular story and being wired for comedy. Like one of the things that popped into my mind as you were just sharing that was Hannah Gadsby's performance, not the not the recent one, Douglas, the one before it. I'm mm-hmm. just now blanking on what the name was, where she goes from making people, you know, like really laugh, then to going to a very painful, dark experience that was absolutely extraordinary that left people in tears. And maybe they showed up thinking that they were you know, going to a comedy show. But um, to the one, you know, like people who I've known who have seen that have been just profoundly moved yeah. and, and been thankful for the experience. And I think it's, there's such an interesting line and it's so thin between those two extremes, you know, like the, the extreme darkness and, and just pure humor and dancing between those in a way which is cathartic and integrative, right? To go back to what we were talking about, I think what a powerful skill set to be able to develop. I remember being so fascinated with, um, uh, George Carlin, you know, and, uh, you know, from my era, my time, you know, you, you start looking at people like, uh, Carlin and, and, uh, you know, all the way back, Lenny Bruce. And, you know, here are people who, uh, breached all kinds of, uh, boundaries by using, uh, the skill set of, uh, uh, being able to tell a story that would make you laugh so hard you could barely catch your breath and then, you know, take, the uh, a transition or a bridge comment and take you all the way back to see something uh, so uncomfortable. And um, uh, again, you know, uh, I was a George Carlin freak and, uh, you know, he passed away before his uh, his book had been finished, which was a memoir. His, his brother actually reads it uh, and his brother sounds very much like him. But part of the interview and part of the material that he had, he talked about the fact that as he matured as a comic, uh, he learned to put people into very, very, very uncomfortable places um, and then give them a release. And that the comedy ended up being a, uh, a way to sort of pulsate the emotions, which I think has tremendous value because he could talk about abortion or, uh, you, you know, problems in the church he could he could talk about all this stuff and make people almost cringe and then tell this you know ridiculous story or this anecdote uh that was just hysterical i i don't know if you if you remember but they have something called comedy cover where they have actors uh, portray other actors doing comics like uh, classic comics so I, I i forget who it was but they were doing al with, with the night he died uh they they had uh a, an actor doing al pacino uh mimicking a story of george carlin's talking about baseball they gave him a baseball <laughs> in an al pacino voice so that that stuff intrigues me that's i'm gonna have to check that out now actually it was i had never heard of that before so all of this really, you know, swirls together to create sort of like a, a blend, you know, this, this, this beautiful sort of combination of interests, expressions, impact for you. Um, you mentioned earlier that about a decade ago or so, you personally landed in a dark place and really, I think, had to revisit, well, how do I, not only how do I be of service to, you know, to a, 
uh, you know, daily uh, clients as they show up. But how do I, how do I, you know, like when, now that I'm the client, the patient, now that I'm in this space, how do I emerge from that? And, and it, it sounds like that was around the time that also the foundation, the, the early work around what you've now come to call learned hopefulness mm. um, really begins to emerge. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that uh, I've noticed as a pattern in my life that I wouldn't have known was a pattern because I think when you're living it, it's just uh, the next damn thing that comes up. You know, you're not really uh, preparing yourself in, in such a way. But uh, just like I started before talking about, uh, I'm really not going to be a, a tradesman. I don't have that skill. I don't, I don't think that way, you know, that kind of thing. And sort of having a door shut on you and then um somehow a little squeak opens up okay well you're going to go do this now and then this little tiny you know fragment of light says oh come over in this direction then you get there and maybe that isn't what you thought it would be and then but it opens up yet another door another door so i've learned to know it's important to honor the pain uh, that uh, it's there and it's probably a lesson of some kind for you to cope with. And, you know, on, on the furthest end of the extreme of, of that kind of uh, discomfort is, can I, uh, is there something about me being able to tolerate this that's important to learn? Is this something that I have to end uh, my experience with and, and move on? Or does this start a, a quest uh, for me looking for a better way. Uh, so it's, it, it's taking a deep sense of honoring pain as a teacher and, and then a motivator. Uh, and then uh, just like a rocket ship would uh, have a booster rocket that falls away, it gives a boost. And then, then once you get away from the Earth's gravity, something else pulls you. Uh, that's been my experience that I'm often motivated by profound discomfort and this discomfort then ignites a spark that uh, uh, has, to, has to be dealt with in one way, shape, or form. And then, you know, as you collect more and more of these experiences, you, you learn, uh, uh, do I stay too long in uncomfortable situations? Probably. Uh, but it's also helped me gain tremendous tolerance for other people's pain. So, you, you know, it's like it's not always all bad, all good, but you you develop a way of thinking about it that can be very helpful to move you along to the next step. Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm I'm familiar with um, the concept of uh, learned helplessness. Hope is interesting. Learned hopefulness. And the fact that it actually you, to to be able to think about okay, so you started from a, a place of darkness, your own struggle that launched you into this deeper exploration, which you know years over the process of years built into theory and practice and tools to um, to work towards this this thing called learned hopefulness. What are we actually talking about here? What what is this thing? Yeah. So uh, I again, I was just very lucky. Uh, I went to. Uh, you know, UPenn and the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. And, you know, was a student. And literally the day that I graduated, the next day, Marty invited me, Marty Seligman uh, invited me to um, become his assistant. So I've been in that role for about 10 years. And uh, the, the, the glorious part of that 
was, uh, you know, we got every year now, every every semester, I was exposed to the latest, hottest, newest research, uh, all the best uh, uh, folks in the field coming to speak at UPenn, and um, you know, being able to talk with Marty about a wide variety of things, and then. Uh, about three or four years ago now, uh, I was invited to a lecture uh, that he was giving with uh, Steve Mayer. And this lecture was a 50-year follow-up. Imagine that these two guys were roommates at Penn uh, back in the day. They did this incredible research on uh, helplessness. It explodes, changes the world of psychology. And, and basically, those original experiments were uh, animals and then humans. They would put them in an uncomfortable situation, um, a, an aversive situation. And uh, in this situation, they were... Uh, exposing them to chronic uh, adverse situations where they couldn't uh, get out of them. No matter what they did, they were just stuck. So it was uh, all kinds of uh, situations. But basically, if it uh, went on for a while, you would see the animals get really agitated in the beginning. Then they would just basically give up and they would collapse. And then they would put them later on in a situation where uh, it should be very easy for them. You know, they would put them in a cage where this floor would get electrified and they would jump over this very low partition. They should be able to escape it. It's called an escape paradigm that they use. But what happened is when they were exposed to something that unpleasant, they gave up instantly. Uh, they they wouldn't do anything. They would just cry and whimper and lay down and, and stay in a bad place. So here we have this incredible paradigm that blew everybody away because it showed that if you had this kind of learning where nothing you did mattered in this situation, that it would transfer over to future situations and create learned helplessness, right? Um, that it, Marty's book came out in 1975. It blew the world away, changed how we think about depression because it was about getting control and, and cha-cha-cha. So <laughs> I go to this class and 50-year uh, follow-up. Now, back in the 60s and early 70s, when they were doing this, they didn't have fMRIs. They didn't know what was going on in the brain. They had to make guesses about all this. Well, now they know. And what they realized is that they were completely wrong about the theory. I had read the paper, but listening to them, here are two of these extraordinary researchers made a, an incredible career, changed the world. So, nah, we're wrong. So it's one thing if somebody else challenges your theory, but when you're so dedicated to truth that you say, yeah, we didn't we didn't know this back then, but here's here's what's happening. And they created this situation where they were able to watch what happens in the brain when you're exposed to something aversive and it's aversive and it's chronic. And what happens is there's literally like a switch in your brain that shuts you down. It's just like my laptop here or my cell phone. If it gets overheated, it's going to shut down to preserve itself. It's like, mm, no, the conditions here are not good. Let's not waste our energy. We're built for survival. So if we're in a crummy situation for a long enough period of time, we're going to shut down. But now the intriguing part is when you're in another situation, what are you going to do? 
Well, you, you're not unlearning something because nothing was learned in the first paradigm. It was really an evolutionary response, right? So now you're in a new situation. And in this new situation, it's risk assessment of the future. So, so the, the example I can give you is like if I'm about to cross the street, right? And I start to cross the street and I get clipped by a green car and it breaks my leg. They take me to the hospital. I'm in there for a couple of weeks. When I come out and I go to cross the street, I am going to be a little bit, you know, uh, wondering what can I do? What can I do? If I find myself right back at the same corner I was where I got hurt, there's nothing about the past that I have to unlearn. I'm going to start making a risk assessment of, can I get to the other side of this street now in this moment? Are there any cars coming now? The risk assessment is a prospection. It's the future. It's not about the past. The past might inform it, but what's going to pull me forward is if I can make an assessment about the future and then believe I have control over it. And they called this, <laughs> this loop in the brain that shuts off and turns back on the hope circuit. I, I remember them saying it and I almost bolted out of my seat. It's like, sorry, I have to go write this book. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, so that, that was the origin of it. That, that, that was the inspiration. And then I just reviewed all the research on hope and all the theories. And I found they were all like the blind man holding the elephant. You know, the, the one guy grabs the tail and says, oh, hope looks like a rope. Uh, the other guy grabs the leg and says, it looks like a tree. The other guy grabs a ear and says, oh, it looks like a bird. And I said, well, instead of me challenging all these theories, what if they're all right, but they just have different pieces of it? What would hope look like if what we know from medicine and we know from social psychology and we know from educational psychology and character development, and personality, what if they were all right? What would hope look like? And then that's where learned hopefulness came from. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the integration of all these different worlds, but also the, you know, the underlying, the awakening that it's not a process of unlearning and relearning. It's really a process of activating mm. to a certain extent. And also that it is an intentional thing. Mm. You know, like there are decisions that you can make, there are tools that you can use and there are actions that you can take to go from a place of having, you know, like feeling like you've given up to actually a very different place which is interesting too because you know if we if we think about you know in a clinical setting so many people who are, are living with depression and one of the the huge overlays with that is this feeling that this will never end like this is in fact the way i'm going to feel mm -hmm. forever mm -hmm. there's a, a vanishing of hope from that experience so if if the idea that you could potentially do things that would reactivate hope, which isn't going to cure you immediately, but maybe that's the thing that allows you to start to see a sense of possibility in that setting. And then, you know, that's super powerful. And then I guess my broader curiosity too is, you know, we're, we as a society, as we have this conversation, we are living through a moment, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we, we have layers of things that are both happening now on a, a public health uh, level and that have been going on for generations and generations and generations on a systemic oppression level. And I, and I wonder how this reframe works in the context of those bigger things too. So, so like my curiosity spans, you know, the, the immediate experience of somebody who is in some way suffering to this much broader experience of like, 
is this involved in some way reshaping larger change at scale? Mm. Yeah, boy, there's a lot, lot there. That's a, it's yeah. like a <laughs> fifteen layer question. There. <laughs> right. So, but let me let me just start at the core. You used a great word about intention, and and I think if we can just hold on to that for a moment, uh, because uh, if we if we try to understand the origin of someone's intention. Uh, it 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 kind of pulls back this uh, veil of uh, a belief system, right? And uh, because the intention uh, is really based on a belief, and everything we know in psychology that has to do with well-being or devastation has to do with belief systems, and and so it was William James who said, uh, "My experience." is what I agree to attend to. So now it's like we have lots of possibilities about what we're going to believe, right? But the question becomes, what are we going to pay attention to? This is, is sort of like, where am I going to shine my light? You know, if I walk into a dark room and I shine the light on the floor and I see mouse droppings and bugs and things like that, my interpretation of the entire room is that it's uh, it's infested and bad and negative, right? But if I take that same light and I shine it on the wall and there's a, a marvelous, marvelous work of art and Monet or, or Rembrandt, and it's, oh my goodness, that's what this room is uh, is holding. So the question becomes, how do we do what I call belief modification. You know, in the 60s, we had behavior modification. It's like belief modifications at the core of this. And our beliefs are, they're so central to our health and well-being, uh, politics, social development. It, it, they're so central to it that we can all not, not see the forest for the trees kind of thing. If, if you take a look at something like medicine, right, and a new drug, well, what, what do the pharmaceutical companies have to go up against in order to prove that this medicine is good or important or valuable? Well, they have to go up against our belief system. They have to go up against the placebo effect, right? And what is the placebo effect? It's people believing that something has property to it. It, it has... So the... The belief system in a placebo is that there's something good that's going to happen here. And in a nocebo effect, which is the opposite of that, it's, it's like something bad. And if, you, if you've ever gotten a new drug or medicine or something like that, and you Google it and you look, read the side effects, you're going to get all those side effects. So, so part, of it, part of it is to help people recognize that they have a choice um, and that not to make a decision to change is a decision to remain the same. Either way, there's an incipient moment that we can either repeat or we can challenge. And bringing that core awareness to people's attention is really what learned hopefulness is about, to, to recognize when you're making a decision to do things the way they were being done, uh, that's a choice and something that can change. And you know, a lot of the different exercises and things that are introduced there are about helping people challenge their perceptions so that change is possible. Yeah, I mean, you also make a really interesting distinction between 
hope and faith, which I thought was mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, uh, people use hope, optimism, and faith in the same breath, uh, that, like they're all the same. And while I understand that, and I've certainly done that uh, myself over the years, uh, I, I had to learn the nuances. So there's a, uh, with hope, you're saying that I believe I can influence the future. I can have an effect on that. I can control it. I can, I can do something about the future. I can make something happen. That's very different than optimism, where you are just under the belief that oh, something good's going to happen tomorrow. I, I think it's going to work out. There's no sense of agency there. There's no sense of, you know, personal pathway that you can make something happen. It's that something good. It's, it's more generic. Faith has to do with letting go of what it is that you can control and that there are outside forces uh, that are going to manage the outcome, not you. You're going to have power and control up to a point, and then something else. It could be a government. It could be a, a higher power. It could be other people. It could be your parents. Or, you know, it depends on where you are and what what format that is. But at some point, uh, you you have to have to recognize that what you can control is no longer going to influence the future, something else will. You know, there was a great interview back in the day uh, for Catfish Hunter. He was a, he was a pitcher into the Hall, Hall of Fame. And um, he talked about all of his training. And he talked, oh, you know, how he took care of his arm and worked out in the off season and this and that, and, you know, practice in different weather and, you know, in the rain and this and that so that he would be prepared. And uh, I remember listening to this interview and he said, but at some point, I've got to let go of that ball and then I don't have any more control. So I want to bring as much control to that moment as possible. Then I, then I have to let it go. And I thought, oh man, what a wonderful metaphor for life. Yeah. Kind of like the serenity prayer to a certain extent. Very, very true. <laughs> right. Very, very true. Right. That's why that, that prayer has been around for a very long time. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's interesting to me also, you know, one of the things I learned is, you know, sort of exploring well, well, life satisfaction and uh, is this sense of intentionality, a sense of agency and uh, you know, the phrase locus of control, mm. you know, like they, we tend to do better, to, to flourish more, to thrive when we feel like that we have some ability to exert um, control over the outcome that we, we seek to achieve. And yet, you know, other data shows that when you look at communities of faith, yes, they very often register amongst the highest in terms of being satisfied mm-hmm. um, and content with their lives. And they have probably also the highest amount of a certain surrender of a sense of locus of control and just, you know, really leaning much more towards the faith side of the spectrum. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that you can, you sort of like have those two things going on simultaneously. You know, it's really been interesting and something has, uh, has just, um, uh, just happened that I'll just, uh, share where I've been invited to become the, uh, academic director for the Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Columbia. So I, I've been teaching there pretty much right from the beginning. And um, they invited me to come and, uh, uh, you know, sort of help move that program out into the community and uh, offer workshops and that kind of thing. So that's been really lovely, but it's also given me pause for thought about this blend between positive psychology and uh, faith and religion and, you know, all, all of this kind of stuff, because I'm in a position now where I'm, I'm working with religious leaders and spiritual leaders and, and, and like that. And along the way, they invited me <laughs> to speak at St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, which blew my mind. It was like, holy mackerel. Which for those not non-New Yorkers, this is this legendary, legendary place in the, in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> and it was, I, I remember walking in and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I wish my mom was alive now. I don't know that, uh, you know, and, and I think even my father would have uh, <laughs> said, yeah, you know, you didn't become an electrician, but at least you're speaking at this place. Um, uh, th- so that was really intriguing. And they, they had invited me into talk about the difference between hope and faith. And I, and I think one of the things that I really wanted to share during that presentation was this idea that there, there's a, a sort of a handshake between the two, uh, that you, you have to be doing your part. 
Uh, hope is a matter of staying engaged and and being uh, able to uh, achieve your goals, have purpose, you know, move move forward, and at the same time recognize that it's like faith holding its hand out to you. Uh, that once you can uh, show that you're moving in the right direction, and you can feel that. That's basically an extension of saying you're doing the right thing, not just for you, but for the greater good. And that to me is probably the next area I'll, I'll take a look at, this idea of uh, how uh, hope and faith intersect. Yeah, I think it's kind of a fascinating interplay. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting also in the, sort of the exploration of hope, I know that you've referenced numerous times, is that hope and tell me if I'm getting this right, hope actually requires uncertainty, mm. which is a little counterintuitive, but then when you go deeper, you're like, oh, no, I think I understand that. But it's almost like a prerequisite yeah. to hope. Tell me more. Sure. I, I, I think, you know, when you start to study positive psychology and positive emotions, it's sort of like, woohoo, you know, there's, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to figure out about how to have more joy in your life, more happiness in your life. But the, uh, the thing that really piqued my interest was that hope is the only positive emotion that requires negativity or uncertainty to be activated. See, if, if, if I'm not uncertain or negative, I don't need hope. If I am sure of what's about to come and I'm okay with it and I'm, pre you know, I don't need hope because uh, it's that that's not even on the table, but the uncertainty and negativity is an activator. And, and once you have that degree of activation, that becomes this incipient moment, uh, this, this moment of choice. What are you going to do uh, with this uncertainty or negativity? You know, in, uh, uh, in uh, Mandarin, there's a symbol uh, for crisis is uh, opportunity and danger. And I took a, a deeper look at um, where that came from. And really what it means is there's a moment here of choice that you have to make. What is it are you going to do when you're confronted with this negativity or this uncertainty? And that choice point is a decision. Uh, you're either going to decide to see this as an opportunity and a challenge and move toward it, or you're going to collapse under the weight of it. And that's that fulcrum point between learned hopefulness and learned helplessness. It's like, mm, I'm going to shut down from this because I don't think I can, I can have any effect. Or I'm going to start recalibrating my goals. I'm going to start seeing this as a challenge. What can I do to bring about a change? And that, that spot ends up being, uh, to me, uh, super, super fascinating. Super fascinating. Yeah, and, and I mean, doesn't it in a, in a way also circle back to that original using your language the fulcrum between comedy and tragedy oh absolutely absolutely you know i, I feel like i'm just sort of haptically going through life sort of feeling my way you know <laughs> it's like oh wow there's a pattern here you know <laughs> you know that's it's and and i don't think it's a you know if i take a look at the larger thing i was a trauma expert now positive psychologist it's like oh yeah i guess it's you know but there's a great saying in buddhism you know you pick up one end of a stick you pick up the other 
so uh, I, I don't talk about positive psychology now without talking about the difficulties, uh, you know, and I don't talk about trauma without talking about uh, the hope that uh, that comes with it. So so I think that that's that's a very astute observation on your part. Yeah, one of the other things that um, that you explore um, and you write about uh, your most recent work is this idea of the role of noticing beauty, mm. noticing blessings, right. and how we tend to arrive at whatever moment we're in in our lives, wired through experience and whatever it is that brings us to that moment with often profoundly different noticing skills like you know like the things that we actually see and i guess it you know speaks to what you were talking about before also to a certain extent you know you look down and then you look against the wall but i i think my curiosity around this also is that i wonder if we don't realize that those around us even those closest to us who we feel we know best in the world may be wired profoundly differently and and we almost don't understand how they could not see things the way we see them. yes yeah 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 you know, in, in some of the uh, uh, things like we talked about a little earlier with the virtual gratitude visit, this idea of embodied cognition at its core is a role reversal. Uh, and uh, that means to try and understand what it is that other people are experiencing. There's a really deep ignorance uh, for most of us, uh, myself included, about what's going on with the other person. Most of the therapy that I do and most of the work that I do now is about trying to understand what what is that person's experience. I, I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to, you know, sanction it. But I'm not going to be helpful or effective or informed unless I can fully take that perspective. That was one of the things that Moreno really, really helped to uh, illuminate this idea. Uh, it's not just about encountering the other person. It's about becoming the other person, being being the other person for a while so that you you understand it experientially. Then when you come back to being you, you're transformed. Uh, you're, you're, you're awakened in a way that you can't do cognitively. If, if I just say, yeah, 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 I know what your experience is like, no. Um, but if, if I have a little taste of it, a, a little bit of that reality, now I have, oh, oh, that's an affective learning experience. Now, now I get it. Now I understand it. And I think that's that's been very much missing in education, very much missing in, um, uh, you, you know, university work, uh, because there's a lot of um, education that's that's done uh, academically, which is certainly needed. Uh, but I'm of the mind that that that's good. Let's put it into uh, an experience where people can feel what it feels like just even if it's for a moment because now that's going to inform your awareness in a very different way yeah and that makes so much sense to me um how powerful would it be if that was if that was actually something that was built into every college age student's experience in a meaningful way some sort of you know like guided um intelligently well-formed experience yeah. that uh lets you do that and and maybe with you know, a, a range of people who um, you saw both as being very similar to you and also radically different to you. And then, you know, being able to go through a process and, you know, like 
Okay, so let's take a semester and every week we're going to like pick you know, different people. I, I can't even begin to imagine how people would be changed uh, by an experience like that. Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll just share two projects that I'm uh, immersed in now uh, that are uh, along these lines. I'll, um, I'll talk about the first one. I, uh, my uh, uh, second memoir was called um, American Snake Pit, uh, Hope, Great and Resilience in the Wake of Willowbrook. And what I wanted to do there was uh, tell the stories of um, uh, transformation that people who, you know, on the average had IQs around 40, had a secondary psychiatric diso uh, disorder, and who were in uh, the worst uh, asylum in American history. And uh, they had created an experiment to, to bring them out into the community only so that it would fail and they would go back in. Uh, so spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, uh, they do much better than anybody thought. And so I wanted to write those stories. And I also did the screenplay for American Snake Pit uh, because I really believe that if people can see exemplars, and this is, a, this is a social justice book. I mean, I did all the research on the legal background, the Willowbrook decree and what happened in New York State because of it. it it's a lot of people don't know that that mental health became a civil right in the United States because of the Willowbrook decree. Uh, in other words, they couldn't put anybody in any institution, in a prison, in a nursing home, any institution without having mental health rights. That's where that came from. And you know, we can talk about the legal stuff and, you know, you, you know, you've been through enough of the legal things to know that that can be pretty tedious and difficult, but can we tell a story and can we show a video? Can we show a movie that awakens people's spirit and ignites their own transformational properties? Because that to me is a way of reversing roles too. I might not have had their life but if I can see a movie and if it's done well enough, if that story is told well enough, I am going to resonate with that story in a way that's going to awaken my story. And now we've got something that's very powerful because you, you can't watch something like that and not be moved and not be uh, transformed. Um, and that's where I think we, we have great movies that... Uh, give you a little glimpse into the life of another person. That storytelling, that I'm really interested in because we might not always be able to reverse roles, but if the story is well done, movie is well done, you're going to be able to live in that space for a little while and then come on out with an informed opinion. Uh, and the, the second thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention is um, uh, we, we're taking the, uh, the elements of the virtual gratitude visit. I'm working with uh, people from um, uh, the actor's studio to, um, uh, to uh, take the uh, experiential theater to another level where we can set it up properly so that um, people could have a theatrical experience an engagement with someone else's real world authentic drama in a very brief period of time, but they'll be moved by it and inspired to do their own work. So I think there are ways, my, my point about that is that there, there are ways through uh, storytelling and theater uh, that can help us reverse roles uh, with others, even if we can't live their life, we can understand it at a deep level. 
Yeah, so agree. Um, it, it is, a, it, I hadn't even really thought of theater as that, but for sure the most profound theater that I've seen does does that to me. I mean, what's um, the name of the show? Um, the Dog. Uh, oh, yeah. Curious, the Curious oh, no, Incident. Case. Curious Case of the Dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, effectively a one person or just a couple of, you know, like people and somebody whose life experience was radically different than mine. And yet the whole time I, I left change. Sure. You know, it was just um, it was super powerful. Um, the, the one other thing that sort of surfaced for me looking through certainly your work on uh, hopefulness also is, is the role of expectation. Mm, yes. Which I think is kind of, is kind of fascinating. Yes. And, and how that really um, has a strong effect. Absolutely. I, I, you know, in, in doing the research for uh, learned hopefulness, I went back and I looked at uh, uh, the studies in hypnosis back in the sixties and there were, there was some uh, extraordinary stuff. It's carried forward, but in, in uh, one series of studies, they had um, uh, hypnotized people and told them that uh, they're doing this experiment on uh, pain thresholds and blah, blah, blah. And that they were going to touch them with a very hot coal, uh, and that, uh, you know, they're not going to break the skin, but they're, you know, they're going to be touched with this hot coal and they get them ready. They put them in this trance, right? And then they touch them with an ice cube. And what happens is they blister up. So you, you start to think about that for a minute. It was like, oh my goodness. Now we have all other kinds of studies where the expectation itself transforms us biochemically. So they have studies on uh, uh, allergens where they, they say, oh, this, uh, we, this is indeed uh, 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 ragweed. It's not. You know, and they, uh, they say, you're going to get this, you're going to, and vice versa. They'll take something that has the active allergen and uh, tell people that it's not this. Oh, okay, yeah, I don't get the symptoms. The, the power of expectation uh, peels back to the power of belief. If you believe, you know, it comes back to Henry Ford, right? Believe you can, believe you can't, either way you'll be right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing because I think, it's actually, I think it, it, people could probably make the leap between, okay, so my expectation about how something will unfold, I can see how that would track back to me even less than consciously changing my behavior so that I'm more likely to play an active role in making it unfold a particular way or, or not. Right. But the notion that simply the expectation of a certain experience or outcome will actually potentially change our biochemistry, our physiology, Yeah, is both freaky and cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have time for a quick experiment? Yeah. It won't take sure, very sure. long, so I'll, yeah. I'll just ask people, as long as you're not driving a car or something like that, to close your eyes for a moment. And I'd like you to imagine a lemon that is in front of you on the table. And as you see the lemon, you become aware that there's a very slight wisp of a smell of lemon in the air. Now I'd like you to imagine cutting that lemon in half. And as you do, you'll see little bits of lemon juice come on out. And the smell of lemon actually gets a little bit stronger. And 
if you pick up half of that lemon, I'd like you to put it right under your nose. Take that half a lemon and really take in a deeper smell of it right now. And if you would, I'd like you to just bite right into that half a lemon, grind your teeth into it, bite right into it. And if you'd open your eyes, my guess is you produce saliva. If you bit into that imaginary lemon and produce saliva, you've changed your biochemistry just by imagining this. There's no lemon, there's no smell. You just allowed yourself to focus on that and it changed your biochemistry. Can you imagine what happens when we're having ruminating negative thoughts? It's generating almost pure cortisol. Our adrenals are pumping all of this biochemistry through us because we're worried constantly about it. So it's like we're chewing on lemons 24 seven when we're ruminating. And by the way, I'll just tell you the flip side of this. Uh, normally when I do this, I have people imagine somebody they love um, and that that person is right in front of them and they get a warm feeling in their chest. And uh, I had a student last semester said, so it's really about lemons or lovers. I was like, yeah, kind of. That's it. That's pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by um, how by the sort of like seamless feedback loop between um, our our state of mind and our and our state of physiology, mm -hmm. um, and how that can then manifest mm -hmm. in you know everything from hope to depression to illness to positive outcomes and actions in our lives. Um, and, and even, you know, like things, I'm fascinated by how, you know, we're so unaware of the link between so many things. I remember reading uh, research that showed that people who were holding a cup that was either filled with cold water or a warm beverage and then introduced to somebody new um, we're far more likely to have warm feelings to like the person if they were holding a warm beverage Absolutely. and to feel that like the person was cold and distant if they were holding a cold glass of water. And we're like, are we really that sort of like simple? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> apparently we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many different levels of uh, studies on perception and how it influences us and some of it like that, some of it visual. You know, that's the other the other thing I'll, I'll just say about the uh, – uh, the news, you know, I've been a very strong advocate for people to limit their news watching, uh, because if you're bombarded with uh, negativity, you know, there's a saying in the news, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So if it's, if you sit down and are listening to the uh, negativity, watching the images from that, uh, without a cap on it, one of the things uh, that will happen, just like you said, you know, if we could be influenced by the temperature of water and our interaction with others, what happens if we're exposed to, uh, you know, I belong to the media uh, group for uh, psych psychologists, you know, in Division 46 at the APA. And, you know, we, we say every year, don't show the uh, images of 9-11. You re-traumatize folks. Well, the truth is a lot of the material that's out there can be re-traumatizing. And if you keep it to about 15 minutes a day, tops, you get all the news you need. You get everything, you'll get updates. And probably if you read it, it's a little better than uh, being in front of the, the imagery uh, because the imagery then uh, influences us another way. I'm not asking you to not be informed, uh, but 
to manage your uh, stimulus activation of that because you can stay informed but not overwhelm yourself. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, starting to zoom out a little bit um, as we start to bring our conversation closer to an end. Um, and I want to zoom the lens out again to what we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, which is like these ideas, um, maybe even this this idea of expectation in the context of the moment that we're in, where, you know, I, I, I've had fascinating conversations lately with people who, honestly, for decades or generations, have have looked at the state of our culture, of society, of race, of uh, all these different things that are playing into it, and done the work, and yet at the same time said, they simultaneously don't really have any hope of change. And and what the conversations with some of those same people very recently has changed, not that they believe that we are going to see um, large-scale change, but the, there's this slightest glimmer that hope has entered the building. Yes, right. And that there's an there's not even an expectation that things will change, but there's this expectation that maybe they won't stay the same. Mm. And I'm curious how... I'm just curious about how that plays into our experience of the moment. Well, you know, when um, I have this uh, thing called the 21 day hope challenge uh, that is based on uh, a host of interventions, uh, most of which are in the book, but the, the idea about it is that there are seven for the past, seven for the present and seven for the future. Um, and a lot of people don't think about uh, positive psychology in terms of like interventions. They just say, what can I do to feel better? But when you break it down, there are things from our past that can be extremely helpful for us to go back and reharvest. So the gratitude we have for what happened yesterday, that's very specific. Uh, just thinking about that again, changes our chemistry in the moment. It, it elongates that positivity and brings that forward. And things like unforgiveness. Uh, so people have a pain from the past and they, if they hold on to it, it sort of becomes an inhibitor. So there's like seven of those I've developed that, that you go back and you can either activate and extend a positive emotion and bring it more into the present, or you can release something that's been an inhibitor. When we get to the present, uh, there's a host of things that can happen there, something called dispositional mindfulness, flow, things that bring us right into the moment. But uh, the number one thing is kindness. See, kindness has got this big bang for the buck. I remember Marty uh, Marty Seligman being asked at a conference, you know, you know everything about depression. What, what's the fastest way to get out of a depression? He never missed a beat. He said, do something kind for someone else. This idea that kindness can change not only our internal focus, but our external interaction is really powerful because an act of kindness, it comes with it something called elevation. Elevation is a phenomenon in positive psychology where uh, we seem to be wired for noticing the good stuff. 
uh, but it's sort of latent because we're overwired for the bad stuff. <laughs> right? sort of, if, if you see a woman helping a man across the street because he's elderly, you'll notice that and feel this warm feeling. But if uh, there's a guy yelling at a cop because he just got a parking ticket and his voice is escalating and getting closer to the cop uh, and you see that, that's going to hijack your attention because it's a threat with kindness. Uh, if we engage in an act of kindness, we're going to feel good. The person receiving it's going to feel good. But the big bang for the buck is that anybody witnessing it will feel just about as good, have just as much change in their vagal tone and biochemistry as the people engaged in it. So this the, the one thing that you can do is, is be, be kind. <laughs> and there's actually a protocol that I, I, uh, I write about that uh, it's uh, five acts of kindness in one day. Uh, and you pick one day a week. My day is Thursday. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> this means if you drop the book on Wednesday, I, I'll, I'll say, I wish I could help you. But no, no, no. I, <laughs> it's, it's that is that I just become very focused on that day. You do five acts of kindness in that one day. And what happens is it elevates your awareness to kindness around you. You start noticing it more and it kind of pulls you out of your own dark space. Mm. Yeah, love that. So it feels like a, a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out together in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To the quote I used earlier by William James, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And for a good life, attend to the things that you want to see happen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.